Welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Often when we envisage UFOs, we think of distinctly different encounters. The peace and love encounters of movies, like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, or Contact, where benevolent species, thousands of years in advance of us, embrace mankind with a benevolent and kind contact, where they put us on the path to utopia on Earth. Then there is the much darker side of the phenomena, invasion, genocide, and the extinction of mankind and potentially all life on Earth. Think of Independence Day or War of the Worlds. But this is all Hollywood make-believe, right? Aside from the abduction phenomenon, there is no evidence for these visitors from wherever they come from having negative or downright violent encounters with mankind, right? Well, tonight I'm going to introduce you to one of the most fantastic but spine-chilling cases of UFO interaction with humans you will ever hear of. No, it isn't just a couple of hunters drinking hillbilly moonshine in the backwoods somewhere, or the pilot of a Cessna seeing the planet Venus. There was definitely something to it. If not, why would the second largest military in the Americas spend a year with troops deployed in the field investigating these encounters? So, first and foremost, folks, thank you so much, as always, for listening to me, tuning in to The Paranormal Sun. It really means the world to me that you take your time to listen to the program. First and foremost, I just want to say to the people in the U.S. dealing with the wildfires, uh, my heart goes out to you. I really feel for you. It's something that seems to get worse every year. You know, we can go down the, the, the path of arguing over what's the cause. Is it climate change? Is it something else? The bottom line is that people's lives are really being affected. And I really feel for all of you who are dealing with it. As I say, I'm originally from the Pacific Northwest, and to see these areas, you know, five or six states at a time burning, to see California burning the way it's been, I really feel for you folks. So, you know, try and show some empathy for your fellow man, for the people who are going through this. It's, it's a really difficult time for a lot, and, you know, my heart really bleeds for you. So anyone dealing with this, and again, you know, I'm asthmatic, so that, that amount of forest fires, if I was still there... I would probably be in the hospital myself. So for those of you who are dealing with this or, or have dealt with this, you know, stay strong. Do your best to, you know, hold your head up and realize that, you know, you, you can rebuild. Things can go on. I, I know it can't be easy to see your life basically destroyed by these fires. But, you know, just, just try and stay as positive as you can, folks. And also to the people who have been affected by these hurricanes that we've had, you know, the last few weeks or a month in the uh, in the American Southeast. Of course, it is hurricane season, and I realize that it's something that, you know, the people of those areas do expect, but it, it's never any easier. You know, from Louisiana to Florida and all over the, uh, the Caribbean, you know, it hits them hard every year. So my heart goes out to you. So aside from that, folks, um, the case that I'm going to cover over tonight is really fascinating. And this is going to be a marathon session, I can tell you. This is going to probably be another hour and a half long program. 
It's just amazing the amount and depth of material I found. And this is something else because the country where this occurred, uh, English is not their native language. So to find so much information on the internet, it's, it's really uh, enjoyable for once to find such a huge amount of information. With most of these cases that you hear me cover over, I might look at 30 or 40 different sites and, you know, the stories are probably 80 to 85% the same on each site. And I have to go through and kind of glean information and try and cobble together some different inputs or some different thoughts on it to give you a bit more of a wide ranging offering of theories and stories and just give you some background. It can be quite difficult at times because so many uh, times, you know, websites just basically cover the thumbnail sketch. Uh, nowadays, with the way that media is, people watching five-minute videos on YouTube, not a lot of people want to spend an hour, you know, watching a documentary or something like that, unless it's really fascinating content. So this case, I'm telling you folks, this one is is really, uh, it's awesome to have so much information. And in fact, there's a lot that I left out that if I would have included it, we would have had to broke it, you know, probably broken this into two kind of hour and a half programs. So this is really an excellent one, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So stay tuned for that. So aside from that, um, you know, I just want to give my traditional shout outs to some of the very close friends of the shows, uh, you know, to Eddie and his family in California. You know, stay safe there, Eddie, and all my California listeners, you know, stay safe through these fires. Do your best to hang in there. To Adriana and Nico in Texas, again, thanks so much for the support and always having kind words. To Chris and Max and Chris's family in Illinois, thank you so much, as always, for being one of my bigger supporters. To my friends at the Old 77 in Jeff City, thanks so much, guys. Uh, keep keep putting out the good content. Content. To my Chicagoland listeners and the and the, the Quite Unusual pod, keep it up, girls. You know, keep putting out those good programs. It's excellent. Harry and Lisa in North Carolina, of course, I couldn't do it without you. Lisa, congratulations on the project that you've been working on. And uh, it's just awesome to see you going out there and living your dreams. So, you know, keep it up. And of course, uh, to my listeners in France and all over the globe, thank you so much. To the Fidianga tribe and to my Montana family, thank you all so much. And everyone who takes the time to listen to my voice wherever you are in the world. Now, as always, for those of you who may want to get in contact with me, there are quite a few ways you can. You can go over to the website, which is theparanormalsun.com. You can go over there. I've got uh, web, you know, I've got I've got pages for each of the programs, so the Paranormal Sun and the Fortunate Sun. You can, if you feel generous, you you know, you can uh, drop drop a dollar or five dollars or whatever into my PayPal account there. Anything that you would donate to the program. You know, it goes into keeping the program up and running. Things like, uh, you know, paying for the internet, the power, the uh, the printing, the ink, the paper. It's uh, it's not a massive cost, you know. It's not like running a, <laughs> it's not like running a, a, a country club or something. But there's definitely costs involved. So for anyone who does, thank you so much. Again, you know, you can go and find me on the Instagram page. So I've got an Instagram page for the Paranormal Sun and one for the Fortunate Sun. I'm not as active over there sometimes uh, as I'd like to be. It just gets to be a bit much sometimes to have to post multiple, you know, um, post multiple photos across multiple sites. So I do my best to at least give you a few photos each week so you can kind of see what I'm talking about uh, as I discuss the program. And again, you know, you can just reach out to me on the good old email. So 
You can email me on theparanormalsun at gmail.com or you can email me at thefortunatesunpodcast at gmail.com on either of the shows, whatever you'd like to do. You can also support the program on Patreon if you feel that you would like to support the program. If you would like to see more content, uh, you can go and support me there. And again, thank you so much, everyone, for the kind words, the support that you give me. It's really what helps helps me get through some of the days, some of the times where I just feel a bit overwhelmed with all of the information, all of the things that uh, you know I've got to get through. Uh, you know, like uh, tonight's program, it was a lot of time spent researching. But I'm really glad I did it. And as always, as I say, I learned some new things. Now, again, for those of you who might have missed it, I was on the Old 77 podcast not too long ago. The team on there had me on. And, uh, you know, we just had a bit of a what I like to call a fireside chat. So, you know, just guys kind of sitting around uh, talking about some of these subjects that I discuss on the program. So, you know, we talked about some of the things the the guys talked about the Wendigo episode that I did. We talked a bit about the Illuminati, UFOs, uh, ancient uh, megaliths and structures. It's quite a good program, and it flew by. And um, hopefully in future I'll be on there again. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, who knows, I might also have uh, the guys on this program at some point. As many of you know, I'm a bit of an IT Cro-Magna, so I do my best. But, uh, you know, if I look at getting guests in the future, it's definitely something I'll have to look into how to – manage the audio from multiple people, etc., etc. Now, with all that being said, folks, I'm going to get into the news of the dam now. And for those of you who are new to the program, Charles Fort was one of the kind of founding fathers of the paranormal category as we know it today. So he's one of the first people that actually started correlating some of these stories in newspapers and publications around the world and collecting them and categorizing them so that people like you and I could read them and, you know, delve into them and make some conclusions. And Charles Fort called any data that was ignored by science or excluded as damn data. Therefore, that is the idea of this new segment. It's called the, the News of the Dam. It's my homage to Charles Fort. And every week I try to give you at least three good articles about something that Mr. Fort would find interesting, you know, something that is right in the wheelhouse of this program. Now, today I've got four. Even though it's going to be a very long episode, I just found too many to exclude any of these four. And as always, there will be links in the show notes to these, so you can go over there and have a look. Um, now, these are all from Coast to Coast AM again. I do apologize, folks. Uh, you know, I realize there's lots of other sites out there. But if I see a good article, if I find all four on one website while I'm going with those four, because the whole point of this program is to present good information for you to make up your own mind about. So I don't want to move past something just to say, oh, well, I went and farmed it from another website. Now, Coast to Coast AM, for those of you who don't know, um, Coast to Coast AM is a radio show in the U.S. It is the leading overnight talk show that's on. And, you know, for years, the, the listenership's been anywhere from kind of 5 to 15, 20 million people. And it's on um, every night, pretty much on AM radio, and this was founded by Art Bell. So, you know, when you hear me talk about Art Bell, he was the father of Coast to Coast AM, and the website guru over there is called Tim Banal. So all of these articles are always bylined by Tim Banal. So this first one here is video, possible signs of life detected in atmosphere of Venus. And again, anything like this that, that uh, you know, 
especially life in the universe, I always try and keep you up on what is the most current that I can find because it's not easy. You know, you'll hear about these studies or you might catch a very quick byline on the news and then it's gone. So when I see them, I try to make sure I cover them over on the show for you. So it says here, in what may ultimately turn out to be a landmark discovery, astronomers have detected a curious chemical in the atmosphere of Venus, which could be a sign of alien life. The remarkable find, announced in a paper published on Monday, and that was, so this article was published on September 14th. I'm not sure exactly when that Monday was, but it would be, you know, about a week ago. So yeah, I guess it would be, you know, around the 13th, something like that centers around the gas phosphine, which scientists observed as approximately 30 miles above the surface, sorry, observed at approximately 30 miles above the surface of Venus. What makes the detection of phosphine so tantalizing is that here on Earth, it is only produced by industrial activity or found near microbes, which is why it is considered by some researchers to be a good indicator for possible alien life. In detailing their discovery, the scientists who detected the phosphine noted that an exhaustive analysis determined that its presence is, quote, unexplained and after exhaustive study of steady-state chemistry and photochemical pathways with no current known abiotic production routes in Venus's atmosphere, clouds, surface, and subsurface, or from lightning, volcanic, or meteoric delivery. With all of these potential origins for the gas having been ruled out, they argued that the phosphine, found in the atmosphere of Venus could have been created, as seems to be the case here on Earth, by some kind of microbial life. While this development is undoubtedly quite exciting, scientists have been quick to temper expectations, noting that the chemical is only a possible indication of alien life and not the outright discovery of something living in the Venusian atmosphere. The hope now is to pursue, pursue this line of inquiry further with additional examinations of the area where the phosphine was found with the goal of gleaning more information about the presence of the mysterious gas and, should these studies prove to be fruitful, sending some kind of probe or craft to Venus to investigate the matter further. Now, why is this fascinating, folks? We've been told for years and years that Venus is a dead planet, i.e. it just, there can't be anything there. It's got acid rain. It's, you know, the temperature's hundreds of degrees. It's impossible for anything to live there. There's a few, you know, there's a, there's a few lines of thought here. The people who talk about disclosure and disclosure that there's other life in the universe would point to something like this and say, aha, you see, they're, they're slowly showing us that there might be life on Mars, there might be life on Venus. And, uh, you know, I, I do find it quite interesting that they've, they found this gas in the atmosphere. Again, as always, we try not to get too ahead of ourselves. We always reserve judgment until there's a bit more out there. I am not the person who has to have it necessarily cut and dried, anything for me to believe in. So, you know, uh, there are lots of things in this universe that scientists postulate on and they say, oh, well, we're certain of this. So, you know, it, it's the same here. I am, me personally, JT, I'm certain that somewhere else in this universe, there is some sort of life. We are not the only life in the universe. That's me. I'm 100% conclusively sure of that. But again, that's just me. And, you know, you can say it's faith or conjecture. But again, that's just my personal opinion. So this comes as no surprise to me. I would love, you know, sometime in, in, in the days before I leave this mortal coil, 
which hopefully won't be for a good while. Um, I would I would just love to see it proved that there's something else out there in the universe. And, you know, I'm sure once that happens, you know, our grandchildren and our great grandchildren will kind of look back at the days when we said, oh, Earth was the only life in the universe with a laugh, kind of like how we look back at our ancestors who said that the world was flat or that the sun revolved around the Earth. You know, we'll, they'll look back and they'll laugh at us. So quite an interesting little article. Now, the next one here. Now, this one is quite different. Um, I'm just going to read it off for you really quickly. And again, obviously, this is from Coast to Coast AM. And this is unidentified forest object found in Polish wilderness. And there's a photo here. And it says, a man exploring a, a forest in Poland came upon a rather puzzling sight in the form of a mysterious object that some have likened to a downed UFO. Pictures of the pear-shaped piece of debris were submitted to the Polish newspaper Echo Dynia last week by a reader, Wojciech Domalga Gala, who said that they had discovered the strange and rather sizable oddity while visiting a wooded area in the province of Svitskoriski. The object seemed to be metallic and based on what looks to be significant weathering may have been in the forest for quite some time. It appears that Domagala was not the first one to find the, the anomalous item as he noted that there were a number of empty bottles of alcohol scattered around the site. As for what the object could have been, the newspaper suggests that it could be some kind of construction equipment akin to a concrete mixer. More imaginative observers pointed out that the debris somewhat resembles the famed acorn-shaped craft reported in the legendary Kecksburg UFO case and argued that perhaps it was a downed alien craft. While we'd love for that to be the case, it's hard to believe that a ship from another world could have come down in the wilderness of Poland without the powers that be in the country being aware of such an event taking place. Nor, if it did happen, that they would have left the craft where it landed. As such, there's most likely some kind of prosaic explanation for the nature of the unidentified forest object and how it wound up in the woods. With that in mind, can you identify the puzzling oddity? So again, you know, folks, I'm looking at this now, and it is kind of shaped like a cement mixer. And me personally, I'd say it's definitely man-made. Uh, it is quite interesting, though. The other thing that I look at it, and it looks kind of similar to me, is it's kind of shaped like an ocean buoy. It's, you know, it, it's kind of pear-shaped, and it's got quite a broad middle. And around the middle is this raised ridge, which, you know, I can see why someone would say it looks like a concrete mixer. But again, nonetheless interesting, and it's always good to get our mental juices flowing by looking at something like this and saying, hey, what could it be? So again, I'll have a link in that in the show notes, so you can go over there and have a look at the photo as well. So now on to our third article of the News of the Damned, and this one is titled Giant Dragonstone Found in Arkansas. And I'm just looking at the photo of this, and it does look very much like dragon scales, folks. It's it's quite an interesting object. It's kind of ovaloid or oblong. And it says a sizable and scaly object resembling some kind of giant egg was recently discovered in Arkansas and sparked considerable speculation online as to the nature of the bizarre oddity, which it turns out may wind up to be quite valuable. According to a local media report, pictures of the weird find were posted to the Facebook group Arkansas History Unearthed by a man named Drew Bellage. Along with the strange images, he wrote that an acquaintance had stumbled upon the mysterious object in a field and asked, what, if anything, could this possibly be? 
As one might imagine, given the nature of social media, there was no shortage of suggestions from people in the group. A turtle shell, a fossilized piece of dinosaur scat, and a mushroom were among the more prosaic responses, while one imaginative individual posited that perhaps it was an alien egg. Others were more concerned about what became of the two-foot-long object as opposed to what it was, cautioning against cutting into it or bringing it inside of a home. Ultimately, the mystery of the object wound up being solved when it was determined to be a septarian nodule, which is a geological form formation colloquially called a dragon stone due to its scaly appearance. Polished versions of such stones fetch, fetch a rather high price online, which may make this particular piece worth a considerable amount of money given its prodigious size. To that end, a geologist who looked at the photos marveled that the really unique and special find is a crazy-looking specimen, which would be highly prized by Dragonstone aficionados. So yeah, folks, that's just a little bit of a fun one. And yeah, it is very interesting. It's an interesting object to look at. It's got a pattern similar to almost like a tortoise shell or an armadillo. And if I looked at this stone, I too would be going, what the heck is that? Because it, you know, it looks quite different to your average stone. So now, folks, I have got your fourth and final piece of the news of the damned. And this is a bit of a bonus um, subject for you. But again, I couldn't pass this one up. It was just too darn interesting. So this one is titled Japanese MOD, which is Japanese Ministry of Defense, issues official protocols for pilots who encounter UFOs. So before I get into it, folks, you know, the governments of the world have been trying to tell us for so long that UFOs don't exist, they're hallucinations, they're swamp gas, they're lights in the sky, the planet Venus, and now we have the Japanese government telling pilots what to do in case you run into UFOs. So again, it is quite interesting to me how this is just slowly changing around the world. And it does, you know, make you wonder, it makes you posit if there is a gradual disclosure going on that, you know, they're very slowly lifting the lid on it. So it says the Japanese Ministry of Defense has announced official protocols for Air Force pilots who encounter UFOs. The decision to develop such a plan of action first came to light back in April when the country's defense minister, Taro Kano, told the press that the department was working to, quote, establish procedures, unquote, for members of Japan's Air Self-Defense Force should they spot an anomalous object. At the time, he indicated that the creation of such protocols was directly influenced by the Pentagon's release of the three tantalizing UFO videos, including the much-discussed Tic Tac footage. So again, folks, um, that's an ongoing segment that I've covered on this show. And it is interesting that Japan has basically said, oh, because of this, we're covering it. Again, folks, I try and leave supposition at the door. I try and let you make up your own decisions. But me personally, I would say that's a bit of an excuse. I know for a fact that the Japanese government is aware of UFOs in Japanese airspace, at least back to World War II and probably long before that. Now, approximately five months later, the Ministry of Defense has issued their newly created UFO sighting instructions to pilots. According to a media report out of Japan, members of the country's self-defense forces have been officially ordered to, quote, record and photograph any such objects that they encounter or that enter Japanese airspace, unquote. They have also been instructed to, quote, take steps for the necessary analysis of the sightings, including information provided separately by the public, unquote. 
The development of protocols for pilots who encounter UFOs is something of a dramatic shift in policy for Japan, as prior to now the country had no plan of action for such events. And while it may be welcome news for UFO enthusiasts, Kono has told reporters in the past that he does not believe the phenomenon is indicative of aliens visiting the Earth. To that end, he explained that a major factor in coming up with the official procedures involved identifying ever-advancing drone technology that could pose a national security threat. So again, folks, um, drones are real, obviously, and it is a emerging threat to airlines. You've seen some of these instances of people flying drones near aircraft, near airports, everything else. But as of now, you know, drones have a limited range, a limited altitude that they can go to. Um, and moving forward, though, I can see this being an ongoing issue. However, again, personally, JT thinks that this is a bit of a, well, we'll blame it on drones. No one wants to talk in governments. No one wants really wants to talk about UFOs, wants to be tarred with the UFO brush, you know, that they're crazy, that they saw something on and on and on. So I do not blame, you know, them um, saying that drones are the reason why. And again, not all UFOs. In fact, almost all UFOs, I'm sure, are not aliens visiting Earth. As I say, I personally believe that about 100 out of 100 UFOs that are sighted, probably 95 are fairly explainable, and the other five are kind of unknown. And who knows what those other five are? You know, they, they could be aliens. Of course they could. They could be a lot of things. However, I do find it quite interesting that more and more governments, it's not that governments are formulating these plans. Most of them have always had the plans. It's the fact that they're going public with them that I find so damn fascinating because, again, for years, no one wanted to talk about that 800-pound gorilla in the room that was UFOs doing what they wanted in our airspace, you know, all around the world. So, again, this is quite a fascinating case, and it segues perfectly into tonight's, into tonight's main topic. Now, I will give you a bit of a forewarning, folks. This case is... As I say, this comes from a country in South America where English is not the first language. So I do apologize for any butchering of the Portuguese language that I that I may do. I've done my best to pronounce these things. However, my background is in Spanish, not Portuguese. So if I've mispronounced anything to any of my listeners who speak Portuguese, apologies. I'll do my best to, you know, pronounce them as best as I can. Again, some of the interviews... And some of the articles were translated, not by myself, but they were translated by people from Portuguese into English. So again, if there are grammatical errors in there, etc., you can find the links to these original transcripts in the show notes. And I'm happy to point them out if you do have specific questions. And again, you know, I do my best on the program to present you information as best as I can find it. And again, some of this, you know, some people are going to say, oh, this is just way far out there. But that's not the purpose of the show. The purpose of the show is to pre present it to you and allow you to make up your own mind. So with that, and without further ado, on to the very fascinating 1977 to 1978 Colores Brazilian UFO flap. When you scan South America for standout UFO cases, there are hundreds, if not thousands of excellent cases spanning at least the last 200 years. Sightings from the tip of Patagonia right up to the northwestern countries of Colombia and Venezuela. 
No other country, however, can match Brazil, maybe not by volume, but definitely by strange, nearly unbelievable cases throughout the years. Is it due to the immense coastline, the mountainous interior regions, or maybe the Amazon basin? We shouldn't be surprised at the amount of sightings in the world's fifth largest country. In fact, if it wasn't for the huge areas of the remote interior, we would undoubtedly have several thousand more cases to review from there. Tonight's tale is indeed from the coastal area of the Amazon basin, from a small island community now forever burned into the memories of those in the UFO community who feel there is much more to the phenomenon than benevolent space brothers who just want to take us for a spin around our solar system and have us back home by 10 o'clock. In 1977, the Brazilian island of Coloras would be home base for some of the most extraordinary close encounters ever recorded. Only a few of the island's city of Coloras' 2,000 inhabitants would be spared the frightening light beams shot to the ground by many various flying objects. A number of residents managed to take photographs of the phenomenal flying death machines, or chupa-chupas, as the locals called them. Coloras was visited by flying objects of an unknown nature. Nearly all kinds of UFOs were seen, some big, some small, saucer-shaped, cigar-shaped, luminous, or not. They arrived from the north every day, from the sky and also sometimes from underwater, and it lasted for months. Regularly, some of the island's inhabitants were targeted by the objects, sending strange rays to them, and many were badly hurt. The army intervened, and the press followed. At least 35 people reported being hurt by the strange rays. Many more did not say anything and the number injured has been estimated to be up to 400, and finally, all of the civilians left the island. Never had there been an event of unknown flying objects with so many different variations of shape and size in one area. There were reports of small UFOs, large UFOs, cigar-shaped, saucer-shaped, and many more. Some of the objects were luminous, some were not, but all of them could be deadly. The unusual phenomena of the light beams lasted for months, sending the island of Coloras and surrounding areas into a state of panic. The situation in diverse regions of the states of Para and Maranhão demanded action. In June, July, and August, the newspapers brought to the attention of the main city's authorities at Pine, Quiapio, Are Vincente, and Are Bento that people said they were being attacked by what they described as, quote, luminous rays, unquote coming from mysterious lights. Because of some ostentation in the press, and then some death reports related to the phenomenon, there was quite a stir. These strange death rays seemed to come from a Hollywood movie projection of different colors of lights intensely aimed directly at frightened, fleeing citizens. Many hit by the beams were knocked unconscious and awoke with many various medical ailments, most prominently a type of anemia or weakness. Many were diagnosed and treated by local physicians, hard-pressed for a solution. The activity of the chupa-chupas was so frequent and powerful that the people of the region felt that aliens were trying to make contact with them through the powerful beams. As to the origin of the UFOs, some theorized that they would come and go from an undersea base near the Bay of Marajo, allowing the strange flying machines to appear, shoot their beams, and disappear almost instantly. The letter a periodical of the region of Para in 1977 also reported the concern of the inhabitants when the story was known. Scared by the apparitions of UFOs and its effect on the population, Maneco Paiva, mayor of the city of Pine, sent a request for help to the command of, command of the aeronautics in San Luis. Sao Luis, sorry. According to the regional newspaper, 
the command directed the note to the air base of Belim, where the information was followed up to the Ministry of Aeronautics. The phenomena arrived at the cities of Viziu and Bergakna along the Garupi River. In little time, it reached the environs the environs of Belim. One of the most hard-hit regions was Colores, a city with 2,000 inhabitants. The mirror of Vigia in Para in the second semester of 1977 notified the first regional aerial command of the events and requested action from the armed forces. It created quarrels in the city council of Belim when they learned that the inquiry of the, quote, competent authorities, unquote, had concluded that the phenomenon was provoked for meteorological balloons and satellites, the councilmen of Belim complained in court, being angry with the newest ridiculing commentaries in the press. So again, folks, as is so often the case here, you've had credible people report these cases only for them to be explained away as things like weather balloons and satellites. In the village of St. Antonio de Umbituba, next to the city of Vieja, the former policy commissioner, Alciu Marsilio de Souza perfectly remembers facts that occurred to the population. During nights spent in Ubituba in police investigations, he observed the worried state of his people. At the time, a team of the aeronautics walked the region, and some of the members came to speak to him regarding the sightings. It is nevertheless quite possible that the people of the aeronautics were in fact Jacques Vallée and his team. Vallée had been a computer consultant at NASA at times, and was sometimes wrongly introduced as, quote, someone from NASA, unquote. So again here, folks, what we've got is a kind of a version of someone. So so this gentleman, being from San Antonio de Umbituba, uh, he was the former policy commissioner, and he remembers being visited by these people who were called people of the aeronautics. So in other words, he thought they were from the Brazilian government, and, you know, not men in black, but an official investigation. However, they're saying here that this may very well have been a bit of a mix-up with Jacques Vallée and his investigators who also came to investigate this fascinating case. Seized by the dread, the inhabitants of the region came together to chase away the invaders. It did not occur to them that the intruders could be from another planet. The most likely hypothesis was the work of the devil or divine punishment. At night, whole families lit fires smashed cans, and set off fireworks. Others, more religious, prayed the rosary. Still others wielded sticks, stones, and most menacingly of all, shotguns. During the siege, the citizenry was so frightened that many of the women left Kalaras, taking their children away from the terror of the UFOs. The men kept a vigil to protect their homes and possessions. They made large bonfires to light up the night, oftentimes using fireworks and banging on metal objects in hopes of scaring off the intruding craft. Soon this was given up, though, as it had no effect. One group of victims claimed to the press that, quote, they were immediately immobilized as if a heavy weight pushed upon their chest. The beam of light was about seven to eight centimeters in diameter and was white in color. It never hunted them, but hit them suddenly. When they tried to scream, no sound would come out of their mouths, but their eyes remained open. The beam felt hot, almost as hot as a cigarette burn. So... We're going to get a bit further into this, folks, but this is a description of the people who were actually struck by these beams from these chupa-chupas. Dr. Walade Sissiam Carvalho wrote, All of them had suffered lesions to the face or the thoracic areas. The lesions, 
looking like radiation injuries, began with intensive reddening of the skin in the affected areas. Later, the hair would fall out and the skin would turn black. There was no pain, only a slight warmth. One also noted small puncture marks in the skin. The victims were men and women of varying ages, without any pattern that I could discern. Some of the local newspapers and journals tried to make the people of Kalara's area believe that they were seeing satellites, military balloons, or everyday objects. This only went to make the citizens angry, and they knew what they were seeing, and none of the media's explanations even came close to describing the chupa-chupas or their beams of light. So, also folks, something to note here is that Dr. Carvalho, and I've heard interviews with her, and I've seen her many times in documentaries about Colares, she said that she was on the phone with the health ministry in Brasilia and other areas, asking, you know, basically her higher-ups in the government, what do you want me to do? Now, I'll get into it a bit later on, but she was only 22 at the time, so you can understand how she would be seeking guidance from you know, older people, and especially from her boss. She was encouraged by government officials in the health ministry to convince the locals in Colares that this was all a hallucination and none of this happened. And there will be more on that later on. But I do find it quite fascinating, folks, that even in the health department, they were encouraging her to tell people that they were imagining things. Now, on to Operation Plate, which is also sometimes referred to Operation saucer. Now, in in Portuguese, this is Opier Asoprato. So, the gentleman who came up with this name, which I'm going to discuss here shortly, he was a believer in flying saucers, i.e. not necessarily that he had encountered them, but he believed there was something to it. So, he is the one who came up with this name for the operation. He said, he couldn't name it Operation Saucer or Operation UFO. So to him, the next best thing was Operation Plate, which is the big brother of the saucer. At first, the military scoffed at the exploits of the UFOs and the Chupa Chupas. But when reports were received from municipal city officials, the very real fear of guerrillas in the area prompted them to react. So this is obviously guerrilla rebels, folks, not guerrillas as in silverback guerrillas. But you must remember that at this time in the 70s in South America, there seemed to be communist rebels under every bush in every Central and Latin American country. So you can fully understand that the military would be interested in finding out what the hell was going on in Colares and the surrounding region. While some of Comar's officers may have eventually believed that they faced an extraterrestrial adversary, the vast majority of them at this time believed that one of the superpowers, so that meaning the U.S. or the USSR, was testing advanced weaponry without permission in the Brazilian wilderness. The Brazilian Air Force soon discovered the reason for the panic on the island, as their own personnel became targets of the beams of light. They did manage to take four video films of the objects and many, many photographs, but no explanation was ever offered that satisfied the people of Colores. COMAR, which stands for Commando Aereo Regional, the regional air command of the Brazilian Air Forces, arrived in Belém and made a series of research projects in the region under the project name Op Operation Plate or Operation Saucer. They would never affirm that UFOs or flying saucers were responsible for the beams of light, opting for more normal explanations. Opier Asso Prato's most landmark case of ufology dealt with the appearance of the notorious Chupa Chupas, 
box-like flying contraptions, which fired laser-like beams against the hapless inhabitants of Amazonian communities in a 400-kilometer area. These devices, which have been detailed by both Jacques Vallée and Daniel Rebisso-Gesse, caused Brazil's 1st Air Regional Command, or COMAR, to dispatch its forces not to fight the aliens in some romantic, real-life version of Independence Day, but to collect as much information on these unknown objects and to keep the hysterical population of the Amazon Delta under control. Comar arrived in Belém and made a series of research, research investigations in the region under the project name Operation Plate. Captain Yuranje Holanda, head, and, head of the information office, directed all of the operations in the region. And this is the gentleman who named the, the project. During the investigations, the Air Forces obtained four films, and I've heard as many as 30 to 40 hours of footage and hundreds of photographs of flying discs in the basin of Marajo. They also were a great help to the population, providing psychologists' assistance to eliminate panic that seized the entire region. For four months, between October 1977 and January 1978, Holanda and his men remained on the coast of Para, armed with binoculars, cameras, and video cameras, among other gadgets. During the day, they interviewed the victims of the attacks and the witnesses of the sightings. At night, they took turns monitoring the skies. Holanda's team took several hundred photos of UFOs. At first, the photos showed little detail, but with the use of special filters and ultraviolet and infrared film, eight different shaped objects ended up being discerned. The first was a disc with windows. The second was rectangular, like a barrel on its side. The third was trapezoidal, or like a pyramid with its top cut off. The fourth kind was like the fuselage of a Boeing jetliner, in other words, cigar-shaped. The fifth was triangular, or like an arrowhead. They flew very high in the sky and were also seen leaving the water. The sixth was domed. The seventh was pointed on the top and bottom and was black on top and white on the bottom. The eighth was like a ball with three sticks coming out of the back, with lights on the sticks. And the ninth was the massive motherships. One of the experts that they used said the cylinders looked like a 200-liter oil drum. They concluded that the object was reacting to the pictures. They seemed to know what they were doing, possibly looking for them. When we at least expected it, now this is from Colonel Holanda, there they were, right above us. And something else, shortly after we began seeing these things, our eyesight started to deteriorate. Slowly at first, we ended up, most of us, having to wear glasses. Now, if that isn't downright creepy, folks, I don't know what is. It's almost as if these craft, creatures, entities, whatever they were, were trying to make these gentlemen either doubt what they were seeing or make their eyesight get so bad that they could no longer see them. Encounters with humanoid occupants were also investigated by the Brazilian Air Force intelligence specialists. Although most reports describe beings of about one and a half meters in height, so that's about five foot four, five foot five, folks. In two cases, the beings were much taller. A pilot known to Colonel Holanda, driving near Colares one night, saw a disc land behind some trees. He was alone on the road, and it was completely dark, and he became frightened, said Holanda. Then he saw a man walking towards him. The stranger was tall and had blonde hair. He walked close up to the car, looked at the driver, and looked directly into his eyes. 
The driver started to cry, and the tall man shook his head, glanced at the license plate, turned, and walked back into the forest, and then the disc lifted off. He didn't have a massive smile like Ingrid Cold, but aside from all of that, folks, that is a terrifying tale. Imagine being on that dark, deserted road by yourself and having that happen to you. Regarding the numerous cases involving witnesses paralyzed and burned by the flying objects called chupa-chupas by the locals, who believe they suck blood from their victims, Holanda said he was convinced that blood samples were somehow being withdrawn via a beam of red light. Now this is a quote from Colonel Holanda. First came a green light that would hit the person and paralyze them. Then the green light would turn off and a red ray of light would hit, burning them, he explained. They were not attacking people. They were collecting material. Although at least two people died in Colares, and I've heard up to four, after being burned by the rays, these particular cases did not come to Holanda's attention during his investigations. Operation Prato was the largest military mission to investigate UFOs in the world, says Edemar Girvard. More about him soon. Tiago Luis Tichete, president of the Brazilian Commission of Ufologists, or CBU, agrees. What impresses me most is the facts that were investigated, something so incredible, and even today, we are not able to explain what happened. The beams of light from the craft were described as being so bright that they resembled those used to illuminate light night sporting events. Sorry, folks. So, you know, like large stadium lights. They were always sharply defined, directed with perfect precision towards any target. Houses, people, boats, trees, even the Brazilian Air Force's helicopters that were deployed over the island during the investigations. On one occasion, one of these powerful beams is reported to have obliged one of the helicopters to land, although the exact te technical reason for this landing was not given. Senora Alba Camara Vilhena, a married lady living at 683 Rua 15 de Novembro, added, At the time of the Chupa Chupas, everybody was scared to sleep at night, and so almost every night we went away to be with relatives. On one occasion, some people saw one of the craft. It was round and all luminous, so it was all lit up. Just at that moment, a helicopter of the FAB, or Brazilian Air Force, was flying quite near to our house. Then we saw the UFO direct a very powerful beam of light onto the helicopter, obliging it to land on the Sao pa Pedro airfield. That happened at about 8 p.m. one evening. Professor Raimundo Sebastião Aranha said, At that period, I was very closely connected with some of the Air Force's inquiries. They were seeking more information about the Chupa Chupas. According to a statement by Senor Sebastião V. Miranda, former resident of Colares, quote, The Brazilian Air Force spent more than 35 days in our town. They installed various devices near the Bakuri Beach. He said that the Air Force had with them masses of equipment, cars, helicopters, radio transmitters, cameras, powerful glasses or lenses like telescopes, etc., etc. He recalls that in addition to the rank-and-file Air Force recruits, there was a whole group of officers, and he had the impression that there was a foreigner among them. The helicopters that appeared from time to time, bringing material and personnel, attempted to chase the UFOs, but without much success. Indeed, on the contrary, Senor Sebastio said, it was the UFOs that chased them. Now, folks, this is quite astounding. If there was indeed a foreigner in and amongst them, who would it be? 
obviously your first thought would be someone from the U.S. government or U.S. military that was invited to be a part of this exercise. Aftermath of Operation Plate In his landmark book, Vampiros Extraterrestres Na Amazonia, Extraterrestrial Vampires of the Amazon, ufologist Daniel Rabicio Gese notes that the military personnel involved in the operations at Colores managed to acquire considerable amounts of information in the form of photographs, video footage, and audio recordings. But attempts at pursuing the enigmatic UFOs with helicopters proved fruitless. In an interview with author Pablo Villarubia, Rabicio noted that some of the soldiers involved in, in Operation Plate suffered ner nervous breakdowns while others went completely insane. Two factors have seemingly been essential to determine the participation of the Brazilian Air Force or the FAB in the inquiry of the Chupa Chupa phenomena. The extensive invasion of the local airspace by flying foreign craft and the constant pressure that suffered many inhabitants of the region, which was a deep concern to most of the mayors of the hit cities. So they're saying here, folks, that the two factors and the two reasons why the Brazilian Air Force got involved was you've got these unknown objects entering Brazilian airspace and flying around and doing whatever they please, and the fact that the mayors are so concerned in these cities about their constituents. The reason of natural, national defense alone was enough for Comar that was hosted in Belém to elaborate a full report on the phenomena. That was to be thoroughly analyzed in an objective manner. So that's why Comar got involved because of the, the fact that, uh, you know, the Brazilian airspace was being invaded by these craft. To create this documentation, a group of military under the command of Captain Holanda, who had the mission to head Operation Plate, came to survey the hit villages and to collect depositions of witnesses and victims. And later on, folks, I'm going to have several witness cases, individual cases to read to you and to record manifestations of the UFO phenomenon in the area. Again, the operation lasted from September to December and resulted in the elaboration of a document of approximately 1,000 pages, including hundreds of flying disc photographs, drawings, maps, and copies of journalistic news articles. The operation managed to take about five hour, hours of films in 8mm format, evidencing extraterrestrial ships in Amazonia. However, none of this data was publicly released at the time. Now, folks, I know I keep banging on and on about these photos and this film, but the reason why is later on when we get to the conclusions, you'll see why. It's basically that, you know, some of the explanations that have been posited by skeptics. Of course, at this time, many officers faced the UFO phenomenon as something doubtful and even a mere popular myth. So in other words, you know, at the time, the military really looked at this and thought, oh, it's just these bumpkins out in the Amazon. You know, they're seeing things that aren't there. It's, you know, it's superstition. According to Colonel Holanda, the flying disks were seen with much caution as something improbable and were a reason of arguments within the military. In an interview and lectures in Rio de Janeiro at the invitation of the ufologist Marco Petit, Colonel Holanda said that he believed that Operation Plate was completed thanks to the presence of Brigadier General Pratasio de Olivara in the command of the first Comar, who had much interest in the subject. Quote, it was good luck at that time. In that region, an officer of the aeronautics, a Brigadier General, who believed in flying disks, was in charge. If there would have been another officer, another Brigadier General, 
the operation would perhaps have not taken place. Unquote. The reason that Brigadier General Protasio de Oliveira was interested in the subject is simply that he was himself a witness in a previous UFO event, which left him with no doubt that UFOs were material objects. With the phenomenon ceased, the military locked up its activities. Unfortunately, none of the photos and films were disclosed. But to the great surprise of ufologists, in October of 1997, so 20 years after the events, Colonel Hollandia, sorry, Colonel Hollanda, gave a detailed interview to the EDMR researchers Jose Givard and Marco Antonio Petit, respectively publisher and co-publisher of the Brazilian UFO magazine Revista UFO. Shortly, I'm going to read to you the full text of this interview. And again, this has been translated from Portuguese into English, and you can find a link to the original in the show notes, so pardon me for any mistakes that were made. I also went through and rewrote some of the sentences that weren't very clear, just to make them a bit more understandable as I read them to you. Now two decades after the operation, Colonel Holanda agreed to give an interview to the researchers Edomar Jose Girard, editor of the UFO magazine and founder and president of the CBPDV, or Brazilian Center of Flying Saucer Research, national director of Mutual UFO Network in Brazil, so MUFON in Brazil, and Marco Antonio Pettit. In this interview, he tells the experience he lived with his men. Colonel Holanda started to make surprising declarations. He was now a retired colonel and affirmed that his UFO team could not disclose anything before due to the risk of personal sanctions from the Air Force authorities. Now, he stated, I feel myself in the obligation to tell what happened in the Amazonia. The operation had the initial objective to demystify those phenomena. I was skeptical myself about the extraterrestrial nature of those facts, but after some weeks, when the flying disks had started to appear from everywhere, I had no doubts anymore. Now this, folks, in entirety, is that 1997 interview. UFO Magazine. If you have ever created a file, then it tells us that there has already been some progress in the investigation, yes? Holanda, yes. When I arrived from Brasilia, I already had agents who had been sent to investigate occurrences of UFOs because this thing was already happening so often in the area of Colares, which is a belonging to the city of Vigia on the coast of Para. So a bit of background, folks. As I say, there were kind of there was a bit of an ongoing going UFO flap that wasn't only in Colares but throughout this Amazonia area, so about 400 kilometer area. And it was basically parallel across the country. And there were people sighting these craft for at least all of 1977 and in, you know, back as far as 1976. So, uh, you know, that's what he's talking about uh, in saying that this was already happening so, so often in the area of Colares. So, again, carrying on. The mayor of the city sent an officer to the commander of Colmar to inform him that the UFOs were bothering the fishermen very much. Some of the fishermen could not conduct their fishing activities anymore because the objects navigated under their boats. At times, some objects even dove into the water near them, in the rivers and in the sea. The local population spent the night outside. The people set up fires and used firecrackers to try and drive the invaders away. It was the panic that made the mayor contact the command of Komar, asking for instructions, and the brigadier general ordered that I was to investigate these sightings. UFO Magazine. 
Was there at some point a participation or instructions from Brasilia, so in other words, from the capital or from the government, regarding this inquiry? Holanda. At the time, it did not participate. So in other words, at the time, the government or Brasilia, the capital, did not participate in these discussions. There was only one captain and he received only orders. I was no part of this proceeding and I do not know with certainty as of the decisions that had been taken. But for the little that I know, the decision was in the hands of the command of Comar. If it had involvement from Brasilia, I do not know about it. And again, folks, apologies. Um, translations aren't always the best. And there's a bit of stilted English here, so I do apologize. UFO Magazine. How did you organize Operation Plate? How many sections? How many people? How many missions? Etc. And did you organize all of the tests yourself? Holanda. Well, we were a team. I was at the head of it. We had five agents, all sergeants, that worked in the 2nd Division of Comar. Moreover, we had informers on location, people in the places where the lights appeared, on the fields that helped them. At the time, I divided the team in two or three different positions in the country. Clearly, we were constantly in contact with, a, with one another through radio. And as we were investigating any and all indication of ufological occurrences, we settled ourselves in the place. In this period, the agents who had more time than I to devote to this operation, since I caught the train when it was already started, had questioned me all the time. After they saw some lights, as if I was already convinced of the existence of the phenomenon. As I was still undecided, they said to me, But Captain, do you still not believe? I answered that I wasn't. That we needed more tests to believe that those things were flying discs. I had not seen any ship at this time. So, yet. Only light, many and varied, I was still not satisfied. Being interviewed at home, the retired colonel told details of the operation. He recounted his many sightings, admitting that he was afraid of being abducted, and revealed that the investigation was widely documented. There were more than 500 photographs alone, not to mention 16 hours of footage, at least, in Super 8 and Super 16 formats, and a pile of over 2,000 pages of reports. Quote, that blue monster, although it had a very bright glow, could be looked at directly without burning the eyes, he told the UFO magazine. Two months after giving the bombastic interview, Colonel Holanda took his own life, hanging himself in the bedroom with the rope of his robe. Some speculated that he was murdered for revealing classified information and putting national security at risk. Or still, whoever assured that Holanda did not die, he just changed his identity and had left Brazil. So folks, this is very interesting. And again, some things are missed in the translation from Portuguese to English. However, I will say to you that Colonel Holanda said that during the course of his investigation, as he said, he went into this very skeptically as the, quote, devil's advocate and saying that, you know, he wanted proof. Now, as time went on, he said early on all he saw were lights. But eventually he definitely said that he saw craft. He saw a mothership and he definitely changed his tune. And by the end of it, he was sure that it was UFOs, um, you know, extraterrestrials to for lack of a better term, you know, that's what he said, that, that it was definitely something not of this earth. According to the best source we once had available, the commander of the operation, Colonel Holanda, the objectives of the Operation Saucer were, one, to collect as many witness reports as possible about the lights and objects being seen and that performed the strange attacks, two, 
to register the lights and objects in the jungle, called chupa-chupas, with the highest photo and film technology available. 3. To engage, if possible, in a coordinated attempt to contact the intelligences behind the phenomenon. The third objective, according to Holanda, was also fully accomplished when, by mid-December 1977, he and a few of his men were in a small boat in the river close to Colores Island, and they all saw a 300-plus-foot-long cylinder-shaped object that almost landed on the other side of the river. So that's about 100 meters, folks. In a standing position, from its upper part, a door was opened, and a humanoid-like creature in a uniform floated from it to the river level and stood just a few feet from the military and kept staring at them. That was a genuine close encounter with an alien entity, performed by a military team from the Brazilian Air Force. Officially, it was part of Holanda's official orders to attempt such contact. Through the helmet glass, Holanda and his team could see the alien's eyes. No sound was ever emitted by any of them involved, so either the men or this creature, nor by the creature. It stood there for a few minutes and went back to their ship. They took off as part of his duties when Holanda reported that he had a direct contact with the intelligences behind the phenomenon. His superiors at the Comar of the Brazilian Air Force in Belém ordered him to immediately shut down Operation Plato. So he did. He was also ordered to give to his superiors every piece of material, report, photo, film, etc. obtained during the operation, which he also did. So... It is believed that the operation was shut down because the military feared losing control of the situation if the direct contacts continued. This has also been reported to the Brazilian UFO magazine by a number of people who were directly and indirectly connected to the operation. Now that's a very fascinating piece of information, folks, because I'd never heard that until doing the research for the show. Now, moving on from Colonel Holanda, who is the primary source from the military, we also have another very fascinating witness to these events. And as I say, this is Dr. Carvalho. So Dr. Carvalho says she was told to cover up the severity of the injuries from the encounters. Now this is a direct quote. I've been compelled by Brazilian Air Force to convince the locals that the lights attacking them were mass hallucinations and that what they saw never happened. Willade Sissim Cavallo was responsible for a healthcare unit at Colares at the time. According to reports by the doctor, patients were admitted to the health center with symptoms of anemia, dizziness, and fever, and also marks of first-degree burns on their body. Soon the phenomenon was nicknamed by the Riverside people Chupa Chupa, or Luz Vampira, which is vampire light in English. She treated about 80 victims of the mysterious lights. Quote, I was the first one to make contact with the victims of the Chupa Chupa phenomena. Unquote. In spite of my 22 year, years old at the time, so in spite of only being 22, and being completely skeptical, I started to notice changes that medicine failed to explain. The burns on the victim's skin were almost always on the neck and the breast, with two small parallel holes, as if it was a little bite, but it wasn't. Carvalho, a doctor of public health and psychiatry, says that after 60 days of daily records, more than 120 cases, she started to report these cases to her superiors, but she wasn't prepared for their reaction. She has been forbidden to admit something strange was happen happening. But being faithful to what I see, not to what I hear, I kept on speaking, even under the risk of being fired. 
Now, here is an interview with her in its entirety she gave to Carlos Mendez, a journalist from O Liberal, also translated into English from Portuguese. So, again, apologies for any stuttered English, etc., in this interview. Question. The authorities didn't see the phenomena, but even seeing, they wouldn't believe. Dr. Cavallo. They didn't even pay me a visit. I had to discover the victim's lost electrolytes all by myself. Sorry, earth, erthrocytes, all by myself. I've always tried to do my best in my job since that time. I noticed the victims had lost blood because of the research I made to find out why these people had giddiness, sluggishness, and could hardly walk. I sent several reports to the health secretary. Question, and who was the health secretary? Dr. Carvalho. Dr. Manuel Arias. My immediate supervisor was Dr. Luis Flavio Figueiredo. He forbade me to talk, make suggestions, or even agree with the locals. But you don't need medical knowledge to know. Necrosis only occurs 96 hours after a burn. The victim's burns had necrosis immediately, just five minutes after the attacks. Question. What's the explanation to this? Dr. Cavallo. That's when it all begins. They, the flying objects pilots, couldn't be Russians because it doesn't matter their technology at that time and nobody could make burns in that way. Question. As a psychiatrist, do you believe these people could be victims of mass hysteria? Dr. Carvalho. This is what the Air Force always asked me to say. It did not happen any kind of mass hysteria or visual, visual hallucinations. The psychiatry proves it didn't happen. It may happen mystic collective problems with people commit when people commit mass suicide, but nobody can have the same delirium, the same visual, sonic, and, synth and synthetic hallucinations at the same time in many different places in this 400-kilometer region. Question. Who asked the Air Force to investigate the, the case? Dr. Carvalho. Once nobody helped, much the opposite, they told me to shut up. The Calaras mayor at that time, Mr. Alfredo Ribeiro Bastos, called the Brazilian Air Force, and they came from Piranha, the president of the ufology society of that state. The philosopher, ufologist, and biomedical Daniel Rebiso Giese. We wrote the first book on this subject, Vampires and Extraterrestrials in Amazonia. The priest of Calaras and also a doctor, Alfredo de la O, already dead, also called for help. Question. And what hurt you most? Dr. Carvalho. It was the fact that, at 22 years old, being responsible for a healthcare unit, I had a lot of people in front of me needing research to find out why they were immobilized, why they couldn't walk or talk, and when I looked at the hemogram to compare the last records, I've learned that they had very low rates of erythrocytes and hemoglobin. The fact is, no object can bring out skin necrosis after a burn so very fast. A third factor is the alopecia, the fall of hair from the skin. In a way, it will never grow again. The victims have never had hair on their skin burnt again. Question. And when did the Air Force appear? Dr. Carvalho. 90 days after our request. So, three months, folks. When Calaris was empty and scared, they came. Because of the dictatorship we were under, they used to call me every day to ask me to speak to the people, to try to convince them that they were having mass hallucinations, but I always refused. Question. Under all of this pressure from the military, what made you refuse? Dr. Cavallo, I refused to do this. I always told them I wouldn't obey. I disagreed with them, 
when they say I was afraid of being considered a fool. I really didn't care. I have I gave interviews to several TV stations from Brazil, the U.S., and Europe, even under the risk of being fired or being put in prison. Besides being a skeptic, I'm totally sure of what I saw. I don't know what it is, but I know it's real. Question. Did you, as did the Captain Holanda, the investigation commander, see beings from space? Dr. Carvalho. Yes, I did. It was 5 p.m. in the afternoon at Colaris. There was a ship about 50 meters of altitude, so about 150 feet off the ground, above the city's main street. Inside of this ship, there was a being, 1.2 or 1.3 meters high. This happened when I was driving to help a child with, with a broken clavicle. That's a shoulder bone. I was going to immobilize her. They were flying so low that I was completely unable to react. I could see the UFO's bright metal, and it wasn't a dish-like object, but much more like a cone or a cylinder. Its course was elliptical. Five o'clock in the afternoon, your eyes can't play tricks on you. You have, you may have visions, hallucinate, but like me, many others would have to also. Question. Did someone die after being sucked by the lights? Dr. Cavallo. Two persons I took to the hospital in the capital, Belim, died. I took them in my car. And when they gave me the death certificate, I could read, Unknown Reason. The victims had burns, the tiny holes, the examinations. I mean, it's very easy to hide things in this country, especially at that time. Now, that's a very fascinating interview, folks. And again, I've seen this lady in many different documentaries and on different programs. Her story hasn't changed in 40 years. And, you know, you've really got to admire her bravery not to back down in the face of a military dictatorship that basically could have locked her up and thrown away the key when she was ordered to basically tell the people that they were seeing things that weren't there. And, you know, just, just go back to your normal lives. It's nothing. It's all mass hallucinations. So, you know, I do find it also quite interesting that she also saw one of these creatures in one of the craft. So the two primary witnesses that have been interviewed the most and had the most information to detail, both said that they saw these creatures in craft. Now, here's some other individual accounts of sightings. Names for the objects collected by Bob Pratt from eyewitnesses. Chupa Chupas, the light, the fire, the animal, the worm, the apparatus, the thing, the machine, the train, the object, Disco Vodor, which is Portuguese for flying saucer. Those are all some of the names that were given to the craft by locals throughout the Amazon region in the two to three years that this was going on. So although tonight I'm focusing on the Calores event, as I say, there was a lead up of several cases in this region of Brazil. And those are some of the names of the different, you know, the descriptions that the witnesses gave. Now, I read a bit more into this, and most of those descriptions, he said, were given to the, the objects because of the way that they moved or the way that they behaved. For example, the worm, because, you know, one of the gentlemen said that he saw it moving in a worm-like pattern through the air. So, yeah, it is very interesting that, once again, you know, you've got eight or nine different types of craft, and you've got different witnesses saying they saw different types of craft. And, again, this is going on for two, three, four, five years in this region of Amazonia in Brazil, which is very remote, especially back at that time. You know, uh, places like Manaus and that were very isolated. 
in the 70s as compared to now when there's been so much more of the Amazon cut down and turned into housing and, you know, developed for land use. Now, here's a case from some reporters from one of the regional newspapers. Now, this is their account. This is basically verbatim. On May 24th, 1978, the unbelievable happened on the sloping water waterfront at Bahia del Sol Township. So remember, this is where also Captain Holanda and his team went and looked. And this is very interesting because this is several months after Operation Plato finished up. The night was dark with no stars visible in the sky. At 2 a.m., as they were sitting in their car, sheltering from the heavy rain, the Estado de Parra's reporters were awakened by a powerful beam of light, which, however unbelievable it may seem, passed through the metallic structure of the roof of the vehicle. So, again, this light beam did not go onto the roof. It actually came through the roof as though the roof was transparent or it had a sunroof, but obviously it didn't. Alarmed, they rapidly got out of the car. Then, when already a small distance from the car, they saw that a tube-shaped light beam about 10 inches in diameter was coming down from above onto the roof of the car and passing through the metal paneling. All of this went on for about two minutes. When they started taking photographs, the craft, which was emitting the light beams and hanging silent and stationary in the air, at once lit up all the treetops all around. So when the craft basically worked out that they were taking photos, it basically turned on its floodlights, you know, or its high beams, one might say. One of the features that at once aroused my curiosity was the luminous signals that foreshadowed the arrival of the craft. Those beams of light crossed the sky horizontally and were repeated between seven and nine times during an interval of 10 to 45 seconds. The UFOs always appeared from precisely that direction, i.e. north. In particular, it is my belief that the purpose of the light beams is to prepare the route of the mothercraft, inasmuch as the latter never produced any sound during its passage. Such flashes being designed may be to remove all matter existing along the intended trajectory of the craft. We saw the motherships several times, and some of them had a row of lighted windows. The smaller craft were released from them via a sort of cockpit, which would open up in the lower part of the larger craft. So, again, folks, think of a naval squadron. For those of you who don't know much about the military or the Navy, I'm sure you've seen a war movie of some type or some movie with the Navy involved. The reason that you have so many other vessels around the aircraft carrier is precisely for this, to protect it and to clear a path. So if you have things like destroyers and minesweepers and submarines going in front and around your aircraft carrier, it allows you to protect it from threats, whether they're real threats or threats that you don't know about yet. So that was the conjecture of these men, was that they felt that these, these lights were basically clearing a path for the mothership to make sure that it was safe for the mothership to move in whatever direction it was going. One of the other reports describes a yellow to red object flying at low altitude and without noise. Suddenly, it, em it emitted a long bluish light beam hitting the victim on the lumbar region, which is your spine. This part of the body became numb. The victim also complained of paralyzing, muscular pain, and other pains for several days. Another story talks about a flying object of more or less 100 meters in size described by a Colores local. 
so that's about 300 feet. He said the object emitted strong light beams against the city. When it stopped, the local aimed his rifle at the object and shot once. Then he ran away and hid in the bushes. Several locals spoke of a sighting over the Jejunta Estuary, a big, bright object at more or less 1,500 meters and flying faster than a jet plane. So that's about 4,500 feet, something like that. The object turned suddenly and disappeared without the dark night, within the dark night of the Marajo Bay. Quote, I never forgot the panic on the faces of the people who said they had been attacked by lights that came down from the skies and drew blood from them, recalls journalist Carlos Mendez, appointed to cover the case by newspaper O Estado de Parco, or de Para. He estimates that he interviewed 80 witnesses. So again, this is a gentleman who interviewed at least, you know, around 80 eyewitnesses, and he said that all of them seemed to be terrified and, you know, really shaken up by what they'd seen. So again, I ask you, you know, I don't want to get too much into conclusions, but if all of these people were hoaxing it or making it up, how did they fake this fear across all of them? It would be different if only a few of them really seemed to be shaken up or scared. And we all know how hard it is to act on things, you know, act about things like this. That's some of the hardest parts of acting for anyone on television or in movies or, you know, in a play is showing that real raw human emotion and fear is chief among them. Now, here's a newspaper report for you from the time. So the newspaper, The Liberal of Belim, in its 14th July 1977 issue, reported that in June, uh, so on June 22nd of that year, the brothers Opernario, Firmino, and Jose Correa, together with their brother-in-law, Aurelino Alves, sorry folks, some of these names, um, they're, they're not quite the Spanish equivalent, so I do apologize, anchored their boat in Crab Island in the city of Alcantara. During the night, Firmino, Jose, and Aureliano had gone to sleep. Opliniaro decided to sleep on the top part of the boat, so I would assume that's on the deck. Shortly after midnight, as Jose and Aureliano reported, a great object produced a strong flash, but terror hindered them from crying out until Firmino broke the silence with a shout. At this moment, Opolinario was waken up and went down to help his brothers and brother-in-law. When he arrived, he found Firmino dead and the others, two relatives, twisting in pain. All presented marks of burning in the thorax and the chest. The policy investigated the place and found nothing abnormal. The doctor who treated Aurelino and Jose in the Socorro Hospital in Sao Luis gave no conclusion. The legal experts who had made the autopsy of the body of Firmino concluded their report saying he has been burned by an electric dump without further explanations. So again, folks, you know, if you're a doctor and you run into something mysterious like this and someone is telling you a tale of being attacked by chupa chupas, flying craft, most of the time, especially in a country like this where you have got a military dictatorship, what are the odds that you're going to put down something like attack by alien, attack by craft? You know, the odds are pretty slim, I'd say. So it should be no surprise here that, you know, these doctors said they had further, no further explanation aside from being burned by an electric dump. So now here's a report from the Operation 
Plato, observation post. So this is from the post where the military was manned that Colonel Holanda was in charge of. So on November 1st, 1977, the military set up a UFO observation coast post on the Colares water tower. So obviously the water tower, some of you may not know, but water towers in many cities are quite high up off the ground. In many of these small towns and cities, they're the highest point. So it's an excellent place to observe things. When a strange event caught their attention, at midnight, a blue light already saw in previous sightings was moving from south to north and stopped above the sandbank called Coroa Vermilia. Coroa Vermilha. Another bright object, yellow to red, came closer and became dark when it touched the light. Half an hour later, another object did the same, disappearing after, quote, landing, unquote, on the blue light. Captain Holanda said that a huge bright object, which seemed to be the mothership, had been about 100 meters from them. I was terrified. At that moment, I didn't know what could happen. They could have taken us. They could have done anything they wanted to us. There was nothing we could do. Another time, Holanda and his men were at Bahia del Sol, and it was around 7 a.m. in the morning. Holanda says, Soon after the sun rose, we didn't see anything when, suddenly, a huge disc-shaped object with more or less 30 meters in diameter and 50 meters in height hovered above us. So that's about 90 feet by 150 feet. So again, you know, imagine that, you know, you're out here and you just see some lights and then all of a sudden you see this massive craft come and hover over you. Captain Holanda and Sergeant Jao Flavio Costa had seen a few days before a, quote, huge thing, unquote, about 100 meters long over the Guara Miram River, 70 meters away from the vessel they were on. The object, in the shape of a football, large and pointed, so football here, folks, I believe means a soccer ball, large and pointed, had been photographed and filmed by the military. There was no longer any doubt. It was an unidentified flying object, and inside there was supposed to be an extraterrestrial creature. At a certain point during the operation, agents from the former National Information Service, or SNI, were called in to help with the investigations. So this would be the Brazilian equivalent to, like, the CIA or the FBI. Jorge Bessa was one of the SNI officers displaced to Belém. On his first day at Ija de Mosquirio, 80 kilometers from the capital, he spotted a luminous object at about 8 p.m. Quote, he blinked three times. He performed small maneuvers and then disappeared at great speed. He left no doubt that he obeyed an intelligent command, says Bessa, who narrated his adventures in the book Flying Discs in the Amazon, released last year. Now, I don't know when last year was, folks, but that was sometime in the 2010, so it's out there now. The phenomenon was visible to everyone. It was enough to look at the sky, he says. So basically here, folks, Jorge Vesa is saying all you had to do was look up and watch the sky at night and you would surely see these lights and these craft. Also, as I, as I covered over there before, this seems to have been the, around that time. So in, around November, early November 1977, seems to be the time when Captain Holanda really started feeling there was much more to this than lights in the sky and that there were definitely craft involved. And in his estimation, they were not of this earth. Now, Operation Saucer, which is, you know, Operation Plato, collected reports from the people who saw the lights. 
fishermen, rural workers, simple and ordinary people hit by the lights were interviewed by the Brazilian Air Force's personnel between November of 1977 and the beginning of 1978. What they told is written in a report called Operation Plato. The Air Force's document signed by the captain, Holanda, and obtained by newspaper O Liberal. Over 230 pages of Operation Saucer's main report were fully scanned and are published at the website of the Brazilian UFO magazine. So, folks, when these records finally came out in, I want to say it was around 2005, because for many years, the Brazilian UFO community and others who were interested really, you know, wanted these records and they kept harassing the military. Finally, they released some, but not all of the information. And the, the UFO community in Brazil has done an astounding job to go through the documents, correlate them, and translate many of them into English for us to enjoy for those of us that are in the English-speaking world. And I really appreciate it because, as I say, my Portuguese is far from good. In fact, I only know a few words. Now, what I have next here, folks, are directly from these files. So these are from the files that, uh, you know, Colonel Holanda and his team, at the time he was a captain, gathered. Now, there's six different cases here. So these are examples of those cases that they talked about earlier that they recorded, you know, the people, what they saw, where they were at, what their name was, etc. So the first one here is Adelaide da Silva, 37 years old, illiterate, place, Colares, October 16th, 1977, 2100 hours, which is 9 p.m. She noticed a reddish light lighting up her room and all the interior of her house. All the doors and windows were closed. Then she opened a window to see a bright object with a bluish light moving slightly above the trees, about 30 meters, which is about 90 feet. She felt a strong pain in her eyes, and her body became numb. She carried these symptoms for several days. Again, fascinating. This didn't go away after a few minutes. Case 2. Maria Celeste Perenia da Silva, 20 years old, educated. Her UFO sighting happened on October 18, 1977, at 2200 hours, which is 10 p.m. In the same moment, her mother, Adelaide, noticed a strange light coming inside her house. She felt a great pain all over her body. So this is two days after the first case. As if she had been heavily compressed, also a numb feeling started to rise through her body, coming from her feet, and a strong heat appeared, spreading from her right shoulder until up to her head. She thinks she may have been hit on the right side of her body by a beam of reddish light. Case number three. Maria Francisca Furtado, 30 years old, primary school education only. She told what happened in the night of October the 18th, 1977, about 9.30 p.m., 21.30. So this is about half an hour before Maria da Silva's account above. She lives close to a village called Villanova do Ub Obentuba, okay, so I've discussed Obentuba before. As the attacks were becoming more common, she and her husband used to come out every night to Mr. Miguel Archangelo's Soros's house in order to sleep together with several other families for protection. On that day, she was hit by the light beam and got half paralyzed. She felt a kind of electric shock throughout her body. First, her feet became hot and a shiver took over her body. From the feet up and up to her head, she felt the right part of her body become numb, 
and this sensation endured for more than one hour. Then came the headache and the fever. She did not go outdoors, so she couldn't see the ship. Men and women had the same symptoms after seeing the object. Case number four. A farmer called Abel Sores Trinidad, 28 years old, was inside his house listening to the radio when something happened. It was about half past nine on the night of September the 14th, 1977, so more than a month before these other cases, when he noticed a bluish white light coming from the roof. He got half paralyzed and had a feeling as if his head was growing bigger. He struggled to cry for help, but he could hardly speak. For several days after the attack, he had headaches and hoarseness in his voice. His wife, America Silva Sores, 23 years old, had the same symptoms. Case number five. Another report came from Raimundo Nonato Barbosa, 48 years old. He told when he was coming back home through the woods, as he passed by a friend's house, that he suddenly felt as if he had lost his strength. The shoes he was carrying on his hands fell to the ground, so he must have been carrying a pair of shoes. He picked them up and kept walking. The shoes fell to the ground again. When he, when he bent down to pick them up again, he could see a bright object with a round shape like a sea ray just above his shoulder. It was about 1.5 meters and moved at very low altitude, about 5 or 10 meters over the ground. So this would have been about, you know, four and a half, five feet kind of. And it was about 5 or 10 meters off the ground, which is about 15, uh, between 15 and 30 feet. The object was emitting a light beam as, as a flash lamp, very strong and bluish colored towards him. Very scared, Raimundo gathered his strength and ran to his friend's house, crying for help. In the middle of, the, of his way to his friend's house, he looked back. He noticed that the object rose into the sky between the trees, leaving bright and multicolored sparks behind. He complained of shivering, headache, and numbness on the region of his body hit by the light beam. It wasn't noticed the symptoms of burning, so he didn't notice uh, any burning. He showed how the object was drawing on the ground. So he drew the object on the ground to show his friend. He represented the bright sparks using three vertical lines and about 20 degrees between them. He drew small circles connected to these lines and told, told them they were lights in different colors. He couldn't repeat the drawing on paper. Case number six. Five fishermen told the military they could see two beings inside of a ship. An encounter of the first kind with five fishermen of Colores and a ship with extraterrestrial beings inside would have taken place on October the 12th, 1977 at 2030, at 2330, which is 1130 p.m. In the report of the farmer called Manuel Espirito Santo, 20 years old, primary school education, he told the military what happened. During Operation Plate, he told them he was in front of his house with his friends Julio, Paulo, Deca, and Carlito when he noticed a yellow light moving in the rising sunset direction. It slowed down and almost stopped by them, about 20 meters away, which is about 60 feet. Manuel said he could see the light had two pilots. They seemed to be human. The, quote, man, unquote, was at the left side, and the, quote, woman was at the right side. Both were wearing something similar to glasses on their eyes and had communication equipment. The man on the left rose the glasses as if staring at them, like a pair of binoculars. And at this very moment, the other pilot, using a lateral pipe, sent a red beam to them. The moment he was hit by the light, Manuel felt a strong shock, 
as if it was an electric shock. The sensation started at his feet and rose to his head. Then he got his legs and arms paralyzed and almost lost consciousness. The ship went away slowly, speeding up as it went. Manuel could move again, but he felt numbness for several minutes. From far away, the ship looked like a star, red-yellow colored. It changed its color from bright yellow to red, and when it was closer, he could see a bluish light on the frontal upper part. It was cylindrical shaped, like a barrel, and had a frontal smaller pipe, reddish color, and a thinnish one on its side, 45 degrees apart, where the bluish light was coming from. It had about 1.2 to 1.4 meters, seemed transparent on the bluish part, and had a division in between the pilots. So again, folks, this is very fascinating, these six cases. And again, you will see similarities in the cases, but not all exactly the same. And this is 100%, you know, common in UFO cases. Now, there are different ways to interpret that data. But again, I find all of these cases fascinating. Again, the key information, the way that these ships looked, the, the way that they, how the beams worked, how they were struck, the symptoms, you know, how they were struck. Some of these people who were literate, okay, not that these cases were being published in the newspapers, but, you know, you, you've got instances where skeptics will say, oh, well, people read it in the newspaper and then they want to be a part of it. So how do you explain it about the people who are illiterate and can't read and are very isolated in places like Colaris? You know, what would go on in a big city like, let's say, uh, Sao Paulo or Brasilia, where there's many million people or Rio de Janeiro? That's one thing. And, you know, you can have a lot of word of mouth. And I have no doubt there were some word of mouth of people having encounters and telling their neighbors about it. But, you know, many of these villages, you know, it wasn't like they all of the people who had these cases were in this one city or village. You've got to remember, we're talking about a 400 kilometer area. And again, this is the Amazon rainforest. These villages and things are very spread out. So in 1977, before you had telephones and a lot of things in these regions, how were these stories being spread, you know, from one witness to the other if they were all making it up or hoaxing it? So again, it's just extremely fascinating, folks. Now next, I'm going to move on to an investigation by one of my favorite ufologists, one of the most really clinical and, uh, you know, people that has always dealt with facts, always went through with a fine-tooth comb when he's looked at these things, and this is from Jacques Vallée. So as I said earlier, Jacques Vallée went over to Brazil while this was going on to investigate these cases and see what was happening. So it is in the islands around Belém where the waters of the Taratins and the Amazon majestically come to meet the ocean one degree south of the equator that the 1977 Brazilian wave culminated. And it is there that for the first time the proof of the reality of the phenomenon was obtained. More specifically, as Daniel Rabicio has revealed, the culmination took place over a three-month period from July to September 1977 on the island of Colares and on the beach of Bahia del Sol on the island of Mascario. We found fishermen who had witnessed the objects and a doctor who administered to the medical needs of dozens of people hit by the lights from the chupa. She confirmed that one of the patients died after the experience, so that would be Dr. Corvallis. Several of these witnesses also told us that they had observed two teams of Brazilian military filming the objects, attempting contact. So again, here, for those who would say, oh, no, you know, the military just went to observe, they didn't attempt contact. Again, 
here's a world-renowned expert in ufology saying that he interviewed witnesses who saw the military attempting contact with these entities. Ground truth. There was no denying the wave of 1977. It started in June near Cape Garupi, north of the town of Vizuil, and moved in both directions along the coast, towards San Luis to the east and towards Belim to the west during June and July. It reached its peak in September and October. The reason the phenomenon could not be denied was very simple. Every evening the UFOs appeared, coming from the north. In some cases, they flew down from the sky. In others, they emerged out of the ocean. I saw a photograph of an object with a luminous white ring fly right out of the brackish water at dusk. They came over the islands at low altitude and circled. They descended as if to land. They made loops and accelerated suddenly. They hovered over houses and probed the inside with beams. They even emerged out of larger objects and re-entered them. And this happened on schedule every evening for three months. So these were the conclusions by Jacques Vallée. Jacques Vallée, over the years, he has postulated on, you know, some different explanations for some different UFO encounters around the world. But basically, most of the time, he documents it. He writes a lot of really good books, folks. But, you know, in general... His first interest is to document what the witnesses say they saw. Now, this next bit is very interesting because, again, as we get to the conclusions, you'll see why. Now, the Kalaras case was mentioned in a French defense UFO file in 1995. So why is it that nearly 20 years after the event, Kolaris is being mentioned in a French defense file? Okay, you're soon going to find out. So in that 1995 report that was written by an organization that is an official emanation of the French Ministry for the Defense, dealing with the problem of UFOs and presenting it in an up-to-date manner. So at that time in 1995, they were presenting a report that was giving the military an update on the current state of the nation, so to speak, with UFOs. The official position of the French military of the issue. The file is not exactly secret as any French citizen may obtain it by asking for it at the Ministry of Defense. But on the other end, the text is copyrighted, and it is illegal to reproduce it. So, for example, I couldn't take this entire uh, text and place it on my website, is what they're saying. So that's why they've just kind of paraphrased. The aforementioned file devotes a paragraph about the events at Colares under a section dealing with the, with the possibilities of direct threats related to UFOs. The case is quoted as an example that such threats do exist, that some cases are not just observations of objects, but present facts of a much more worrying nature. The French defense, in, in, it presents the case by a summary in a dozen lines of what Jacques Vallée quoted as the source learned when he investigated the phenomenon. The medical effects on the witnesses are mentioned, including five deaths caused by chupa-chupas, and still quoting Jacques Vallée as a source, the report of the defense mentions that the Brazilian Air Force carried out a study mission in the area, which led to a written report. Now, folks, okay, so I'm just going to sum up a few things here. You've had, you've got a flap that lasted several years, but at least four months that the Brazilian military was involved. The Brazilian Air Force dispatched a team of officers, okay, well, I think sergeants are NCOs, 
But anyway, a team uh, not of just your, your normal layman soldiers out into this region to see what was going on. They spend four months there. So if there was nothing to see here, folks, the military, especially at this time, the military, which was controlling the, the, the government of Brazil, would not have had these guys wasting time out there. There would have been other things for them to do. And they documented anywhere between 1,000 and 2,000 pages of documents, handwritten notes, witness testimony, several hundred photographs at least, and anywhere from 12 to 30 hours of film footage, or, you know, depending on which source you believe. There are multiple instances of other people seeing these men in the area, meaning these men from Operation Plate, Colonel Hollanda, which was Captain Hollanda at the time, and his men seeing them in the field. So the fact that it was investigated by the military is above reproach. You cannot say that this didn't happen. All right. That is a fact. And that's why I keep saying that these photos exist and this video footage purportedly exists. You had Jacques Vallée go there and investigate. You had claims by locals that there was at least one foreigner with this Brazilian military team. You have a doctor who was instructed by both the military and her superiors to tell people there was nothing happening and they were hallucinating. You had as many as, at minimum, from Dr. Cavalla's testimony, minimum of 60 to 80 people who were injured by these craft or creatures, whatever it was, and up to possibly 400 if you count the people who didn't come forward out of a population of 2,000. Now, that's a pretty good hit rate, right? So, with all of that being said, now I'm just going to get into some of the explanation and theories. I just wanted to give you a very quick summing up of what happened. Now, first and foremost, one of the, the major things to understand is when this first occurred, as I say, and I have mentioned it earlier, the locals did not believe that this was anything extraterrestrial. They blamed the devil or that it was a punishment from God for misdeeds that they or other villagers may have, you know, done. So at that time, obviously, Brazil was very Catholic. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the proportion was then or is now. But, you know, as we all know, especially at this time in Latin America, you didn't believe in things like UFOs if you were you know, a regular churchgoer, you would believe that this was either the devil or something divine. So it was either angels or devils, basically. Now, the team led by Captain Holanda had, among others, the first medical lieutenant, Pedro Ernesto Povar. Now, on October 26th of 1977, and this is very important, folks, the psychiatrist went to a village, so this is Povar, called Santo Antonio de Ubintuba, which I mentioned multiple times above, in the municipality of Vigia to hear reports of sightings and attacks of the unusual lights. At the time of writing his report, so at the time he wrote his report, the psychiatrist gave the following verdict in his opinion, collective hysteria. Now, at the time, this leaked out to the press and the military got very angry and shut down press reports. Now, skeptics have for years used this as Quote, the official conclusion of Operation Plate. That is 100% false. Holanda also told researchers before he died that not even Povoa 
thought that this was the explanation and that it only applied in his mind to that one isolated village on that one isolated day. Now, if collective hysteria was the cause, all right, did the film footage and the photos and the military team, did they all suffer from hysteria? All of them? Thousands of witnesses all across the Amazon? Trained military pilots? As I say, photographs that exist. That's why I kept banging on about the photos. We know for a fact those photos exist. There are at least 16 in public circulation. The film footage has only been spoken about, and no one to this day has any of that film footage currently that we can view. But again, if it was hysteria, how was this captured on, on photo, and how was this captured on film? Now again, another skeptical argument that is often cited is mass hallucinations, and they've been posited in hindsight, as I say. But again, how can this explain the footage and the photos? You could argue that the films don't exist, like I say, but there are photos, and that's not in dispute. Did the films hallucinate? You know, did, did the cameras hallucinate what they saw? Now, most of the military hierarchy at the time, as I say, be believed that it was either Soviet or U.S. secret weapon testing. Former military officers have stated that the U.S. denied any testing in Brazil, and no such secret Soviet project has ever been discovered after the fall of the, of the Berlin Wall and the fall of the Soviet Union. Now, here's another very interesting angle, folks, and I'm not going to go too, too far down it in this program. As I say, this is already a very long program, and I appreciate you listening to it. But there is another potential entity in this area which may have had this technology, and that's the Nazis. Now, it's a very deep rabbit hole to go down, but... There's one path of thought that says that the Nazis may have lost World War II, but very high-ranking Nazis, and many of them in the SS, and many of the top scientists escaped to South America. They took the technology with them that they were developing at the end of the war, a lot of the Wunderwaffe, and they took this into South America and used this as bargaining chips with the governments in Argentina, Chile, and Brazil to allow them to live lives of luxury and protect them from Israel and the United States and other countries that wanted to get a hold of them. Now, some people will say this is all a crackpot theory, but there is a very good basis in fact to all of this. First and foremost, there was an Operation Paperclip where the U.S. military basically took anyone of any value that they felt Nazi scientists, Nazi espionage experts, spies, people who ran spy rings, took them to the U.S., gave them new names, new identities, and basically said, you know, these either A, these men were not Nazis, so yes, they were in Germany, but they were not Nazis, they had no past, did not serve in the military, or in some cases, they just gave them entirely new credentials, and said that they weren't even German. So that is a fact. NASA was built on the back of Nazi scientists. Now, that may sound like a very offensive thing to hear as an American, but it's a fact. Werner von Braun was a Nazi scientist. He built the V-2 rockets, okay? And anyone who knows anything about this, and if you look into this very far, you will see there is a lot of truth to these statements. I believe it was Kurt Tonk. I might have his name wrong, or Kurt Wolf. He was in charge of NASA. 
Again, another ex-Nazi scientist. It doesn't take long to find out that there is at least some plausibility and some truth to these things. It's also a known fact that people like Joseph Mengele and several other Nazis were running around South America in the 50s and 60s. So don't think that this is impossible. And again, I'm not going to go any further down that hole on tonight's program, but there are many people out there who have done a lot of research, much more than me, that will tell you they believe that everything from Roswell to the 1952 Washington flyover to Operation High Jump in Antarctica all had to do with this Nazi technology and the U.S. trying to subdue or at least come to an agreement with the Nazis and this technology. So it is fascinating, and at some point I will get there. So UFO activity has been particularly heavy in the Brazilian, Peruvian, and Bolivian Amazon and its tributary rivers. So as I pointed out early on, is there something about the Amazon? Now, leading many, this has led many people to strongly suspect the existence of a massive UFO base in the region. Such a belief was voiced as early as 1965, when Dr. Olavo Fontes speculated on a possible extraterrestrial, quote, military invasion, unquote, in the northern part of Brazil. A retired military man, General Moacir Uchoa, seconded this belief. So this was a former general in Brazil. Again, this is someone who should know some of these things. He stated that his nation's air force had considerable evidence pointing to the existence of such a UFO site. Uchoa's personal skepticism of the phenomenon was overcome when his daughter was cured of a terminal illness by a UFO entity. By 1969, just as Project Blue Book was winding down in the U.S., the Brazilian Air Force was setting up its Sistema de Investigação de Objetos Aéreos now in de, in de, in, in de, ficados, sorry, or S-I-O-A-N-I. This operation coincided with the oft-mentioned Operation Prato, or Operation Plate, whose purpose was that of a collecting information of UFOs from the riverline communities of the Amazon Basin, as well as investigating and, fo and photographing any anomalous phenomena. However, researchers of distinction, such as Fernando Cleto Nunes Pereira, have argued that the bulk of the information collected by Operação Plato was turned over to the U.S. Air Force. Brazil, having neither the resources nor indeed an overwhelming interest in exploring the UFO enigma, would barter its findings for more tangible benefits. So... Basically, what this sums up is it's saying that there are many people in Brazilian ufology who know and have contacts that basically believe that the Brazilian military and the junta or the dictatorship at that time turned over its findings and its UFO files to the U.S. in exchange for other agreements. And it could be things like agreed shared defense. It could be things like the U.S. military selling goods to Brazil on and on and on. We all know the kind of deals that governments make behind the scenes. The U.S. manifested an interest in the Amazon region for the first time in the 1960s, when American interests penetrated the Amazon basin in search of a rare mineral, niobium, a silvery gray metal vital to the production of spaceflight-related alloys and the cores of nuclear reactors, as niobium cannot be corroded by uranium. Both niobium and manganese can be found in relative abundance within Amazonia. Forty years later, ufologists are still trying to access the material collected during Operation Prato. 
Where are the photos that Captain Holanda and his team took? Why have we only got 16? What about the films? What happened to all of that material? Was it turned over to the U.S. military? The material available for public consultation is just the tip of the iceberg, says ufologist Edison Botutura Jr., president of the Gujara Ufological Group, or the GUG. According to Givard, the daughter of Brigadier Protasio, a retired pentagogue, is one of the few lucky people with access to the top-secret footage. So she says, among other terrifying facts, she mentioned the mothership hovering over the Amazon River, that she saw this film footage at that time, so in the 70s and 80s, when she was young, and when her father was Colonel Hollanda's, uh, you know, area commander. Another impressive scene, says Edison, is the one that reveals a UFO submerging in the waters of the Tapajos River in broad daylight. The filming, according to the ufologist, would have been made by Sergeant João Flavio Costa, Captain Holanda's right-hand man. The only certainty I have is that we are facing one of the biggest enigmas of ufology. What's more, the sightings are not over, says Edison, claiming that 40 years later, flying saucers continue to appear in the region. So, folks, what are we left with here? It's a fascinating case. It's a massive case. I've presented so much information for you tonight. I mean, there's so much more to this than a case like Roswell. Now, I don't mean, you know, with Roswell, there's supposed bodies and everything else. But I strongly believe that if Colares would have happened in the U.S. or Canada, this would be considered right up there one of the top, top UFO cases of all time. Now, it shouldn't be shocking to you that researchers and authors who believe that the UFO phenomenon is more negative than generally accepted have seized upon this as an example of these ill intentions. I don't know about you, but if I had the technology in question and I wanted to cause harm to humanity, I could think of much more straightforward and effective programs to cause harm, unless the plan all along was more along the lines of sowing fear and panic. If that was the case, then it was a success, because again, the people in Kolars and the surrounding area were terrified. They were at a point of, you know, mass panic. Captain Holanda's thoughts were as follows. So again, repeating what he said before. He believed that the Chupa Chupas were collecting blood from the population. He said that it seemed that most witnesses were first struck with a blue or green beam that basically acted as a numbing or general anesthetic, and that they were struck by a red beam, and Holanda thought that this was where the blood was being drawn. For what purpose, he said, who is to say? But as Charles Fort said many years before him, he said he couldn't help but feel we were all the property of someone or something else. So one of Charles Fort's main tenets in his beliefs was that we, humanity, are all cattle. We are the cattle of another civilization or other entities out there in space, and that we are being branded, we are being herded, we are being tracked surreptitiously, throughout our lives, and this would, again, this would feed into the abduction scenarios. So Charles Fort was so far ahead of his time in all of this, it is something else. On that note, as always, I'll leave the final decision up to you. And irregardless of what you decide, Kolaris will always be one of the most mysterious and unsettling of all UFO cases. As I say, folks, this one is fascinating, and I do encourage you to look into it further. As always, I've got links in the show notes to a lot of the areas where I've gathered this. There's not a whole lot of photos out there on the internet. 
There are photos, but they basically show lights in the sky. There are, however, a lot of eyewitness drawings, things that are taken down by these men from Operation Plate as they went around the countryside, detailed drawings and explanations of what people saw. Now, as the week goes on, I'll try and post several of these onto Instagram and onto the website. So I would encourage you, if you really want to see everything, go over and look at my blog post on the Paranormal Sun website because there I tend to try and post up every photo I can find. It's much more difficult on Instagram to kind of mine these through the week because I've got to write up captions for you and everything else. So with all of that, folks, I hope that you enjoyed this fascinating case. Brazil, as I say, has been a hotbed, and there are several other cases from there I'm going to cover over for you. Now, this has been a marathon session. I do, at this point, however, plan to have another episode out for you next week. At this point, I'm not quite sure what it will be. It may very well be Malta, so Malta in Europe, some of the secrets and legends and stories that go on there, or it may be something else. I'm not quite certain at this point. But aside from that, my friends, wherever you are in the world, wherever you're hearing my voice, I hope that you have a great week. You enjoy yourself. You spend a lot of time with the people that you love, and you do the things that you really enjoy. So as always, I would like to leave you with a quote from Art Bell, and that quote is, A mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter does reside within may not be reached.